Hello and welcome to the Honest Politics Podcast. My name is Alex Gamsik and I'm the founder of Honest Politics LLC. My company does high-level political consulting, but not for politicians. My services are for everyday Americans just like you and me. So let's get started by looking at the second set of revisions to the Constitution that I am recommending. Uh, this section is called a more representative government. So the first change is a change in the number of senators. So the new rule is that every state shall have a minimum of two senators plus one senator per five million people. However, the number of senators in one state cannot exceed three times the number of the least populous state. What this essentially does is it makes it so that California, Texas, and Florida each have six senators. New York has five. Pennsylvania, Illinois, Ohio, Georgia, and North Carolina have four. A bunch of states have three, and then a little more than half the states have two senators each. So what this does is it makes the Senate more representative of everybody, even though it still leans toward equal state representation. I do not think the founders of the Constitution intended for the federal government to be as powerful as it was. The representation of the people in proportion to that powerful federal government is completely out of whack right now. If you look at Wyoming and look at California with their populations, in the Senate, so one Californian is worth 1.46% of a Wyomington. Wyomingtons have like 50 times the representation that Californians have in the Senate. Um, and I did look at during the 1790 census, and back then it was Virginia the most populous and Delaware the least populous, but that was a 7.5% representation or so. So even back then it was six to seven times, like the inequality is six to seven times greater than what it was during constitutional convention times. So this proposal would make it a little more equal in the Senate, given how powerful the federal government is and how most Californians, Texans, and Floridians right now are not represented like they should be in the Senate. Anyway, let's look at changing the House and Senate leader powers. That's the next kind of set of amendments, but I kind of wrapped it into one. So anything that passes one House must be voted on by the other House. So if the Senate passed something, the House has to vote on it. This was kind of inspired by the House of Representatives in 2018 to 19, voting on a lot of important legislation but the Senate not even voting on it. I think if you're a senator, you should have the bravery to at least vote on something that passes in the House. And the same thing with the Senate. If they vote on something, the House should have to vote on it too. That'll make sure that people see the senators and House of Representatives voting records for what they should be. Filibusters are made a lot weaker in this proposal. So if you're doing a filibuster, you can do one but you actually have to stand up there and talk the entire time. And if you stop talking for 60 seconds, then your filibuster is over. So that basically means that you can't just threaten a filibuster, you know, go up there, read a few things, trade off with other members, go to the bathroom, whatever. No, if you are doing a filibuster, you stand up there for as long as you can. And if you have to stop for 60 seconds, the bill goes through. Because right now, a filibuster means that any either minority or majority of a party can stop legislation unless it has 60 votes, 
which is such a high threshold, nothing important will ever get through the Senate. Filibuster's gotta go. That's, <laughs> that's basically all I have to say. And then the establishment of, and you know what? It, <laughs> it doesn't even make sense because the founders never mentioned a filibuster. They never said, oh, let's make de facto the passing votes has to be 60 in the Senate. Yeah, let's do that. They never said that. This is a clear workaround of the Constitution, and it makes absolutely no sense to have filibusters anymore. It, it completely subverts their intent. <laughs> so let's, okay, let's move on. I feel strongly about this. Anyway, the establishment of a public referendum every four years in the House of Representatives. This is another measure to kind of prod along the policy process so that if the Senate and the House are too scared to take up a policy issue, then it'll actually get voted on. What happens in my proposal is that the House of Representatives sets up an office of referendum or something like that, and then I'm assuming it's an online forum where people can sign their names, and whichever referendum is basically upvoted by having the greatest number of signatures gets voted on by the House every four years. And, I mean, not voted on by the House. What it, it gets passed. Yeah, it gets passed if it has the most signatures. And then the only way to stop it is to have the senators veto it by two-thirds. Um, and if the Senate does veto it by two-thirds, a similar topic cannot be brought up for eight years. So let's say marijuana legalization is the first referendum that gets upvoted by the people. Then the House would automatically pass it at the end of those four years. And then the Senate would have a chance to veto it by two-thirds. If they don't veto it, it goes to the president, it becomes law, basically. Um, and I never even put anything for the president in here. Let's just, let's just say it, it becomes law by those two. Yeah, it has to become law, um, which would make sense because the Senate has a veto-proof majority in this case. If the Senate rejects it, then you can't bring up another marijuana legislation from the referendum office for eight years. Basically, it slows the process down if something gets rejected because I can foresee marijuana gets legalized, next four years it doesn't get legalized, next four years it gets legalized. It basically would be too much of a pendulum. The next provision is that members of Congress must vote on at least two-thirds of legislation on the floor because too often I've seen politicians running for higher office just stop doing their jobs. They stop being Congress people, they stop being senators, and they're like, hey, I'm doing something else instead. Uh, how about no? How about you actually go and do your job by voting on two-thirds or more of the legislation on the floor? That is not a hard task, especially if one of the other provisions in here goes through, which is electronic voting. So speaking of that electronic voting, you should be able to vote electronically or from a remote distance if you have to. What I said was that if there's a sickness, like if, say when Senator McCain had brain cancer treatments and he was in Arizona, or if there's a pandemic going on and it's not good for a bunch of senators or house members to be congregating in one area, because that's kind of dangerous, or God forbid if some war was going on, they should be able to vote electronically. It just makes sense. Next, we have presidential pardons may be overturned by three-fourths of the Senate. I just did this because it seems kind of weird the president can just pardon anyone for any reason at any time. That seems like a very broad and powerful power. 
the way the Constitution frames it, it's kind of tucked in with his duties or her duties as commander-in-chief. I think it was more meant for military stuff, but yeah, so I'm not sure the founders really intended it for a president to just be like, all right, you guys all go free. Or like, say people are friends or supporters of the president, just letting them go free, or at least threatening to. So I think the Senate should at least have some kind of veto power. I said three-fourths because I gave a lot of power to the president in this instance, because that's what the framers did. And I'm being kind of conservative in my revisions here by deferring to the founders when I'm not sure about something. But next, I am pretty sure we do need a balanced budget clause. Now, a lot of Democrats when they hear this are going to freak out because they think, oh my god, you can't just balance the budget, even though a lot of states and every municipality does. Well, our current budget does not account for how much money we make. So if you're doing a budget just based off what you want or what you feel like without taking into account how much you make, then that's going to cause like issues creating taxation law, that's going to create issues when you're allocating money. And what happens right now is that there is so much debt that's being piled on to basically my generation, the younger generation, we're going to have to pay that back either in the form of higher taxes or what you're seeing going on is a compounding interest because you have to pay the debt back with interest, but the interest grows at a more exponential rate, meaning there is less money in the budget for social services like Social Security, Medicaid, green energy research, all this kind of stuff. There's less money for that. And there's more money just going back to paying the debt's interest. You're squeezing out social programs and government programs by having a huge deficit. And Republicans don't like the deficit, or at least they claim not to. So it just makes sense on both sides to at least introduce this balanced budget clause, which I added some big compromises into. For instance, you can go 3%, so basically it ties the budget to the previous year's total revenue. I said the total budgeting has to be within 3% of the previous year's revenue. So the budget can still be 3% over what the government made the previous year. Of course, there has to be exceptions because there are points in time when the government has to spend way more money than it makes. That's just how governments work. They have to respond to critical emergencies. And here I said, except for allocations concerning declared war, natural disaster, or other natural, I mean, <laughs> national emergency as stated by the president. So if the president states that there is a national emergency, a war, natural disaster, Congress can allocate extra money beyond this balanced budget. Next, we have... The president must defend impeachment under oath. This prevents a degree of obstruction of justice because it says the president must immediately before the Senate trial begins. So it only takes effect if a president is impeached by the House of Representatives. Then they must go to the floor of the Senate in front of the senators and give a defense in a speech and that speech is under oath before the trial even begins. So this would root out liars and it makes a case where the president makes their best case to the American people. And even if they do something like 
say, oh, the sky is blue, and then walk off and say that was their speech, the American people will see through that and be like, you really couldn't defend yourself without being scared of lying. That's kind of suspicious. The president also has the last word, basically, and is allowed to give a speech immediately preceding the impeachment votes. Like, I mean, the removal from office votes. But that's also optional, so they don't have to defend themselves at that juncture if they don't want to. Which, if they don't take that option, that will also seem suspicious. But I think, considering we're forcing the president to be under oath giving a speech, they at least should have the last word. And the last part of this section is concerning the Supreme Court and federal judges. It says federal judges must retire after 20 years, and the Supreme Court is fixed at nine justices. The nine justices thing is just to quash any talk about increasing or decreasing the number of justices on the Supreme Court, because nine seems like a pretty good number. It's good to have an odd number so you don't have weird ties and stuff. It's all political talk when people talk about adding or removing justices, the number of justices. Um, and I want to strike that completely. But federal justices, <laughs> federal judges and Supreme Court justices have to retire after 20 years. This does a few really cool things. The first thing it does is when someone is considering who to put on the court, they're not going to prioritize younger people the way they do now. We should have the most wise and experienced judges. So we shouldn't say, oh, I can't pick this 60-year-old. I want to pick a 50-year-old. You know, it should be based on their resume, on their experience and their judgment. It kind of removes that obstacle of choosing a young person just because they'll stay on the court longer. It also makes it so that we can see before an election year, is the president going to be choosing two or three or four Supreme Court justices? We can kind of gauge beforehand if that's going to happen. It also makes it so that justices don't stay on the bench like Ruth Bader Ginsburg, even though they have massive health complications. They might be past their prime in terms of fluid intelligence. I don't think people should be staying on the court purely for political reasons past the time when they would like to peacefully retire and perhaps live out the rest of their lives peacefully. I'm pretty sure this combination makes the government more representative, especially when you combine it with some of the other things I have coming down the pike. So the next section is strong and fair elections. Look out for that coming in the next week or so. I'm really happy you tuned in. I'll see you next time as we seek to discover more of the stories behind the statistics. Um, it just makes sense because they're basically handing off a lot of these voting decisions to staff anyway. It's not like, you know, it's just, it doesn't make any sense that they can't vote distant. As long as it's secure, obviously, I'm sure they can set up a secure connection. It's the Senate and the House, for God's sake.